Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to fall. We're officially here. Holidays are out of the way. We're settling in, and it is good to be here uh, with you today. So if you would just bow your heads with me uh, once more. I love the song we just sang where we sang, um, Come Rejoice Now, O My Soul. Man, one of the privileges of being a believer is we get to, with the weight of God's word, actually speak to our soul. Uh, we get to help our soul rejoice where we are prone to melancholy. And today we get to help our soul listen where we are prone to be distracted with all the pace going on. And so let's bow our hearts in prayer and speak to our souls that God might be gracious to us. <clears throat> Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. And Lord, there are all sorts of strengths and weaknesses in a body like this. We pray that we would use your strengths for your glory. And then in our weaknesses, you will lead us to a healthy reliance upon you and upon each other. We thank you that this is part of your wonderful plan um, to love others and glorify your name. We pray that we may do it well um, with pure hearts and repentance. We pray this in your name. Amen. For those of you who have been with us, we have two weeks left in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter written by Paul to a church uh, in what's now Turkey, a church in Ephesus. And what Paul is doing in this latter portion of the book is he's taking our internal convictions about the gospel and he's turning them into these external actions. Um, really, one thing that Paul is pushing against in these, the entire book of Ephesians, really, is the privatization of our faith, meaning that our faith can become something so personalized and so uh, deeply hidden in our hearts that it actually has no impact in the world around us. It just becomes what you think about God, and that's it. In fact, today is the opening day of the NFL season. DVRs are whirring at home right now as we speak, and there are many of us whose allegiances to our NFL team actually has a greater bearing on our time and our schedules than our allegiance to Jesus. And Paul's whole point is that that should not be the case. Believing and applying the gospel is not like going to Kohl's and coming out with a new wardrobe. It's like being in a grave and being raised back to life. That's the analogy that the gospel uses. Change affects everything. And that's one of the things that we are passionate about here at Sovereign Hope, and you'll hear us say all the time, is that we are about gospel change for all of life. The gospel doesn't just redecorate us. It doesn't just repurpose us. It awakens us from the dead and brings us to life. And that changes a lot of things, as you can imagine. And our faith has become increasingly privatized today, so much so that um, our culture has actually been informing many self-professing Christians that you can be a Christian without having that new life have any sort of external impact on your weekly rhythm. But in Ephesians, Paul is saying that this can't be true. And he starts off at the beginning by just saying, from a simple level, we are purchased to be part of a church. We are reconciled not only to God, but we are reconciled to each other. And Paul unpacks this idea of Jews and Gentiles being brought together by the blood of Christ. And so this church, this gathering, is not just uh, something that we do because we're bored. It's that the gospel doesn't make us isolated individuals, but actually brings us together. And as we gather as the church in the first half of Ephesians, we see the wonderful things that God has given us. It is in the church. This is the closest we will get to see heaven, this side of the grave. We get to see believers from all different walks of life coming together and worshiping God, rejoicing in the gospel, encouraging one another, proclaiming the wisdom of God to the watching world. This is something special. And Paul is emphasizing that corporate theology of the gospel. Our faith has deeply personal ramifications. Jesus died for you if you believe in him. But those personal ramifications always express themselves externally through the church. And knowing that, knowing that our faith affects our relationships, Paul now takes this idea of relationships and he begins to press the gospel deeper and deeper into the way we interact with one another. And what I love about Paul's work in the last couple chapters of Ephesians is he's taking um, roughly ordinary places of life and he's enriching it with the gospel. He's bathing it in worship. 
And that means that when he starts talking about our relationships, he is really getting after that gospel change for all of life. It's not just that Christianity shapes what you do for a couple hours on Sunday morning, and if you're super Christian, what you do on Tuesdays at community group. He's saying that the gospel changes things so radically that it actually begins to create change in those relational spaces. And what we've seen is it changes the way you view singleness. It changes the way you view dating. It changes the way you view marriage. It changes the way you view parenting. It changes the way you view anything and everything where people are involved. He's pulling it into our lives instead of just one thing we do once a week at church on Sunday. The influence of the gospel of Paul grows steadily. But let's be realistic. If we go to church, we go to community groups, the way we interact with our friends or our family or our children is distinct, there's still a lot of time left on the table, isn't there? There's still a huge portion of our life that is left unaddressed by the gospel change that the Bible promises. For instance, you go to sleep every day, roughly eight hours. That's a third of your life. Third of your life spent with your head on your pillow, drooling and spiders going into your ears or mouth, wherever they go now. And then on top of that, you graduate high school, you go to college, or you go into the workforce, and now there's another eight hours gobbled up right away. You're not at church, you're not with your family. That's another third of your life. It seems almost immediately that the idea of gospel change for all of life is immediately crippled and narrowed down to one-third of our waking hours. But what Paul is doing in this book is he's saying that all of life is changed by the gospel. The Bible has stuff to say about both of those thirds that are left unaddressed. In fact, did you know that Christians and their sleep should be distinct? Everyone gets to sleep because they're tired. But Christians, we get to sleep because we get rest. There's a difference there, isn't there? Everyone has to sleep eventually because they get tired and they get exhausted and they'll pass out. Our body begs for it. But for Christians, when we sleep, it is actually our ability to rest. It is where God has granted to the believer to say, go ahead, take eight hours, everything will be fine in the morning. I've got things under control. We sleep because we have a God who doesn't sleep. We sleep because we have a God who is more in control of this world than we could ever dream ourselves to be. The psalmist says this in Psalm 127, 1 through 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, that's God, gives sleep to his beloved. For the Christian, sleep is part of our worship. It's trusting a God who cares far more about this world and far more about your life than you ever could. This has been the most effective sermon you have ever wandered into because I just increased all of your worship by 33%. Okay? You're welcome. Sleep is part of our worship. There, now we've come back to two-thirds of our life. We have our waking hours with our family, and now we have sleep. But what about the other third? What about the time we spend in the middle of our day, the eight hours at work? Well, this is where Paul is landing his plane today. In this passage, Paul is completing the relational uh, renovations of the Christian heart by talking about our work and how we view our work. And what if I told you that God really cares? Not just like we understand God cares about everything, but God really cares about your work. That what you do at work and your posture in it is part of God's plan for loving others and spreading his fame. You see, do you think that perhaps we might subconsciously cut areas of our life into different headings? There are certain areas, our marriage and our parenting, and when we're here on Sunday, where it's obviously influenced by the gospel. But then there are other places in our life where it's subconsciously gospel absent where the gospel doesn't have a real bearing there. For instance, imagine if somehow tonight the portion of your body which believed the gospel just got erased. Hit the delete button. It's not there anymore. When you go to work tomorrow, would you be noticeably different to any of your employees or employers? 
Would there be a change if the gospel was removed from your workplace? Or would it be business as usual? In this passage that you heard, Paul is talking to bondservants and to masters, and what he wants us to see is how visibly distinct our relationships are in the workplace because of the gospel. And he's going to show us two things in this text which help us understand that. He's going to show us first a gospel view of service, and second a gospel view of authority. Gospel view of service and a gospel view of authority. Now, a quick note on context here before we get rolling um, is that if you have a Bible with you that you brought, you'll notice if you look at the very first word Paul uses in uh, <coughs> Ephesians chapter, <coughs> excuse me, 6 verse 5, some of them say bondservant and some of them say slave. And that's because there's one Greek word, the word doulos, that covers a vast range of positions of service. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's translated as servant, sometimes as bond servant, and sometimes as slave. And really, the, the weight of this word carries with it two things. It carries with it the economic idea of someone being under authority for the purpose of service. It carries with it this idea of authority being under it and service being rendered out of that. Now, during the time of Paul's writing in the Roman Empire, there were an estimated 60 million slaves. That means that roughly one out of every three individual you would meet would in some way or form qualify for the title doulos. And the reason why translators sometimes translate it slave, sometimes translate it servant, sometimes translate it as bondservant is because the spectrum of those doulosses varied so drastically. On one end of the spectrum, there are many slaves that shared the social status of their master. They were upper class. They were educated. They owned property. And it was actually because of their position as a slave that they were more advanced socially. It helped them. It was a badge, almost a celebrity status of who it was that they served. And then there was this middle ground, which is kind of what the translators of the ESV that we're looking at are assuming that Paul is talking about here, of bond servant. These are people who willingly um, kind of bond themselves to the service of another to pay off debt of, or to make some sort of money, and they basically live with that family. That fits kind of with what he's doing here because just about everything we looked at with, uh, with uh, husbands and wives and parents and kids are in the home, and so we would assume here, that's why they pull the bond servant language in, that these are people who lived in the home with the family. But then lastly, there was also slaves that live in some of the most horrific conditions we can imagine. However, at this time, roughly 60 AD, that was becoming the minority in the Roman Empire. The Roman government has been doing a bunch of social reforms during this time of peace, um, so much so that as Paul wrote this, most slaves were granted their freedom at the age of 30, and private citizens were so apt to release their slaves that the workforce began to crumble, and the Roman government now had to put regulations on how often you could release your slaves. So what's important to know here is that as Paul is talking about slavery and servants and bond servants, he is not condoning or condemning slavery because this isn't the point. That's not what Paul's aiming at in this text. Paul's writing specifically to those men and women who are inside of a church. For Paul to imagine a culture so advanced that it would work without a slave economy would be as far-fetched for us to think of a culture so technologically advanced that we could live on Mars. It just didn't fit with the time of that day, and that wasn't what Paul was writing about. Instead, what Paul was writing to, he was writing to those individuals saying, you are either a slave or you are a master. How does the gospel change that? How does the gospel give you slaves, bondservants, uh, or, or servants hope? And how does the gospel give you masters responsibility. He's speaking to the station in life for each of these people as it relates to their economic servicehood, which is why when we look at this, it's most analogous for us to consider it in context of the workplace. For you who are employees, when you hear bond servants, you are under authority for the position, for the purpose of service. That's easily analogous to what it is you do. For you who are managers or bosses or business owners, when Paul is speaking to masters, he's speaking to you. 
And so with that said, let's dive into our first point today, which is a gospel view of service. And let's read together Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Now, what we're going to see by the time we get to the end of this whole text today is that Paul spends far more time speaking to the bondservants or to the slaves than he does to the masters. And that's presumably because just by population, it's probably true that this church in Ephesus and churches like it are actually have greater amounts of bondservants and slaves than they do of masters. And you see, contrary to what culture would have you to believe, historically, the church has always been one of the most welcoming social constructs. At this point, we have seen Paul speak to this church where he expects women to be present and engaged, where he expects children to be an integral part of the body of Christ, and here where he expects slaves to be worshiping God right alongside their master. You see, God sees the eyes of faith. He doesn't see your social and economic status. That is what God desires in his church, are people who see similar things, where the object of faith is what grants us social standing, not before men, but before God. And what Paul says here is probably something, it's a book that we would love to read because it's relatively short, but it's a book no one will buy because it's not relatively novel. His command to employees, obey. That's it. It doesn't seem new. It doesn't seem trendy. It's not going to be on the top of any bestseller list. But what is new about it is the distinct emphasis that follows everything that Paul says here as it relates to obedience. And I hope you see it. If you have your text in front of you, look at the, te- the, the emphasis. Obey, verse 5, as you would Christ. Obey, verse 6, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God. Obey and offer service as to the Lord, verse 8. And lastly, in verse 9, obey and you will receive back from the Lord. You see, Paul has done this three times now in the book of Ephesians, and so it shouldn't be a surprise to us at what he's doing. He speaks to husbands and wives. He says, if you want to understand marriage, you have to understand the gospel. And then he speaks to children and parents. He says, if you want to understand parenting, you need to understand the gospel. And now he speaks to bondservants and masters, and he says, if you want to understand service and authority, you must understand the gospel. And you really do, because... All of us can go to God when we hear this text and we can say, you've never met my boss. You don't know how ignorant he is. You don't know the terrible things he's asked me to do. Serving him is so unlike serving God. And even more than that, the theme of this text is authority and service, which means not only is it going to be important as to how you respond to your boss, but it actually carries the tone with it of it's important of how you respond to your customers and your clients even when they are unruly and off-based. All of the things that our sitcoms and comedies make fun of and call us to disparage, Paul is here calling us to reconsider in light of the gospel. For many of us, it would be easy to serve our clients and our bosses if they were like Jesus, but that's just not the case. But what Paul is calling you to consider here is the gospel to think on it. Just as he did to husbands, just as he did to parents, think on the gospel. How does what you know about Jesus change the way you interact in your current circumstance? Consider what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this in mind. Think about it. I love how many times Paul calls us to think, to consider, to reckon. Will you do that with me today? Will you have this in mind among you? Will you put it to work to think about these things? Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a doulos, a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus, in submission to God, became a servant to us. In his desire to obey his master, he willingly served those who were entirely unworthy of any service of that sort. He served the people who were most unworthy of this, namely those same people who years later would tack him to a tree. You see, the gospel shatters our expectation of who is worthy of service and who isn't worthy of service because we were completely unworthy of a service like this. If we could have seen Jesus in all of his royal beauty, And if he tried to serve us, we would have prohibited him from doing so. We would have said, I am not worthy of this. But Jesus went lower. And Jesus served us. He did all of this because he loved us and he wanted to obey his Father. And it is precisely Jesus' service of you that you are able to believe the gospel. It is because Jesus served you that you can see his beauty. Shouldn't it perhaps be the case that in our service of others, those in our workplace ought to at least be able to see a glimpse of this gospel service. In 1848, an escaped slave and strong believer named Frederick Douglass wrote to his former master. And he wrote to his master because uh, Douglass was gaining influence as a outspoken prophet against the movement of slavery, and he wrote to him to say, I'm going to use your name, and I'm going to use your professed faith to show the hypocrisy of American Christianity. I'm going to lead a campaign at a national level with you as the centerpiece so that it might bring American Christianity to repentance for they are, tra- quote, trafficking in souls. That's what Doug- Douglas said. But after he gives this fearful remark to his former master, he says, but I have no ill will towards you. In fact, he goes on to say this, and I want you to hear how big the gospel has to be for this to happen. How big Jesus and his service to us needs to be if we ever want to respond to anyone who is in authority over us with a way of grace. Listen to what he says. He says, In doing this, I entertain no malice towards you personally. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine. And there is nothing in my house which you might need for comfort, which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. It takes a big gospel to get there, doesn't it? To consider the things that a 19th century African-American slave considered at the hand of a self-professed Christian and then to turn and to say this shows that there is a bigger reconciliation in our world than what we could ever imagine. And that big gospel is what we have in Jesus. So big that when Paul here says that we obey our masters with sincerity of heart to Jesus, it literally means with singularity of heart as you would to Christ. The singular motivation for you in the workplace must be the service that Jesus extended you at the behest of his Father. And that means this. That the Protestant work ethic doesn't start from ethics and bootstraps. It starts with worship. It starts with the singular affection of what Jesus first and foremost did in submission to his Father and in service to us. And that reshapes everything. So much so here that Paul actually gives three practical points that I would hope you consider today as Monday comes tomorrow that might shape our work week. And so these three practical points, we see the first one is this, is that work, we work as the will of God. We see work as the will of God. If we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 6, we see Paul making this case. Not by the way of eye service 
as people pleasers, but as bondsmen of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I remember at one of the places I worked how distinct it was when corporate came into town. There would be corners of the store where like homeless people just set up shelter and cobwebs were there and it lit like the concrete corroded. And then when corporate come, it looked like Disney World over there. Everything got drastically changed and re-upped and refurbished and it looked good. And I imagine that that's true of all of our lives in every job that we've ever had. We know how easy it is to check social media, to browse the internet, to joke around with our friends, to maybe get a little bit of a rest while our boss or our manager is away. But as soon as they come back into the room, we flail. We clatter back to our keyboards or to our stations because we want to look like we have never slacked off. We want to look like we had been working faithfully and dutifully all the time. And if you read books, if you watch TV, this is the American dream. Doing just enough work before your employer to get paid like you're working all the time. Just enough work to where those who have control over you think highly of you, but you, on the other hand, are literally robbing from them when they turn their backs. But this falls so short of a gospel view of work. We were made to work. God cares about your work. It is what Paul is saying here, the will of God that you work. It is the will of God that you work. Remember back when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and everything was perfect and there was no sin, there was no deficit, there was nothing waging war against the garden, but what did God tell Adam to do? To work it. To keep it. To extend it. You see, Christian distinction in the workplace comes when we refuse to mimic culture and their attempt to escape work. And instead, we pick up the biblical mandate to embrace work for the glory of God. Adam was called to physically keep the garden, not because God just wanted to occupy his time. Adam was called to physically keep and expand the garden because as that physical garden grew, so did the sphere in which more and more people could come into God's perfect world. Now that's Genesis 2. In Genesis 3, the entire garden gets disrupted by Adam's sin. We now live in a fallen world where there is no physical task that we can do to expand God's kingdom. We can't build the kingdom. Adam failed to do it. Jesus is doing it. We as the church just help Jesus. We don't get to build anything. And yet, our work reflects that kingdom, doesn't it? Our work shows what things ought to be like in the kingdom of God. Our work reflects gospel ideals. That means if, if all you do is care about how your boss perceives you, you're going to dodge and duck your way into a paycheck every week. But if your goal in work is to glorify God, our work takes on a whole new meaning, even if we work at the lowest of all positions. Take, for example, someone who works at Taco Bell, the most mundane and trivial job that we can perhaps think of, and yet you're serving food. And Jesus, when he was on earth, gave lots of food to lots of people for the point of saying, I am the bread of life. Every time you feed somebody a beefy triple-layer burrito, you're making a case and you're making a point whether they realize it or not that we need something from outside of us to sustain us. We are not sufficient. And we were made to be sustained by Jesus and his work. You might work in a place which is, like Taco Bell, one of the uh, cheapest places to, work, to, to eat. Your product is of uh, less value than other things that are out there, which means you'll have to endure the scourge of Saturday nights after a Grizz football game working the night shift. But it also means that there is a large segment of our Missoula community where when they want to take their family for a night out, this is what they can afford. And sure, those who make more can go to a restaurant where they'll be treated better because they make more. But what would it look like for you to understand the service that you might give to someone 
where this is their rest. You see, when we come to Jesus, we come with nothing. And yet Jesus cloaks us in his blood, gives us his righteousness so that we are treated just like him. In your service of your clients, do you represent that wonderful gospel? The gospel that says, come with nothing and be treated with dignity because Jesus has died for your sins. And in the gospel, we receive something far more valuable than a burrito or a product. We get the pleasure of God. Whatever it is you do, do you see that as God-glorifying service? And so this week, I want you to consider what are those shadows of redemption in your work? To just put it in a sort of codified way, I was thinking this week, um, most of our jobs are either building towards heaven or breaking the curse. Now again, we don't literally build towards heaven, but we could give glimpses of it. Where in your job are you showing something of what life will be like in the new heavens and the new earth, where everything works perfectly and people are cared for and there is flourishing? Or think, where in your career are you helping break the curse? When I mow my lawn, I fight that curse so hard. Those weeds and that unruly grass, I conquer them, just as Jesus has promised to conquer sin. And when you think about those things, for your job, I don't know what that is. Talk about it with your community group. Talk about it with your spouse. And let that motivate times when your boss's eyes have turned away and God's eyes are still upon you. Work as it is the will of God. Secondly, Paul says that we should work as the worship of God. Work as the worship of God. Ephesians 6, verse 7, Paul says this. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Because our work is according to the will of God, our work is also according to the worship of God. Because here's the simple secret for worship. Obedience is worship. You want to know where worship starts? It starts first and foremost by responding to God obediently. If God is glorious, it's obedience to worship him. If God calls us to do hard things, it's obedient to, believe, to trust and believe him. That's what Jesus says in John 14, 15 when he says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Obedience starts with worship, which means worship, working backwards, is obedience. And this is a much different posture than grumbling hearts and gritted teeth, right? Where Paul first focuses on the action of our hands at work, here he's now focusing on the posture of our hearts. You might consider whatever it is you do, and you might think it to be the most mismanaged train wreck of a job where your tasks are menial and bear no impact. But God wants you to see how you might render your work in that place, not simply as work to the winds of the workplace, but work is done for the glory of the God of the universe. I have another Taco Bell illustration, because why not? Uh, we had a GCF college student who worked at the Taco Bell on East Broadway. And I have a juicy Hollywood secret for you. Kevin Costner eats at the East Broadway Missoula Taco Bell. He does. Kevin Costner eats there. And one day, they were in the back, and they hear this identifiable voice, and they look, and he's got, like, the typical disguise that fools no one of, like, a hat and glasses. And you're like, oh, I've never noticed this is a thing. I have no idea who you are. Um, and they see Kevin Costner ordering, like, a Crunchwrap Supreme there or something, and the entire restaurant just went abuzz. Now, you can imagine that whoever was making Kevin Costner's Crunchwrap Supreme did not do so with apathy. Why? Because it was a special service. My brother-in-law is a chef at a restaurant that hosted Pearl Jam when Pearl Jam was here last summer. And the whole week going into it, he was anxious about their experience in his restaurant. I went to his restaurant, and he wasn't anxious at all. <laughs> Why? Because it was special service. This is the point that Paul is making here, is that our work is given to men. We don't need to work. God doesn't need, he says in the Old Testament, he doesn't need our hands to serve him. We don't work because God is at a loss. We work to serve men. But all of our work is special service, Paul says, as unto the Lord. And I wonder what the difference in your workplace would be if before you stepped out of your car in the morning, you prayed. And you said, dear Lord, 
I am so prone to see this as what it is not. Help me to see what I do today, not as I service to please people, but as service that pleases you. As an act of worship in building heaven and of breaking the curse, so that others might see my good deeds and glorify my Father who is in heaven. What would that do? Tell me next week. Try it tomorrow. How would that change our attitudes and our encounters with those around us? I know in Missoula, I've talked to employers. Missoula has a tragically awful job employment force. It is so hard for people to find good employees in Missoula because we live for the adventure. Everyone wants to worship God on the mountain. No one wants to worship God in the workplace. May our church be distinct in this city because we have men and women not willing to work simply for their wages, but to work because it's tied to the worship of the God who saved them. Can we do that? Can we make a difference in our city? If we want to be a Missoula church, it leads to service in all sorts of places, but it doesn't happen apart from your work week. Worship and work go together. And lastly, Paul says to the bondservant that we must learn to see work for the reward of God. We work for the reward of God. In Ephesians 6 verse 8, Paul says this, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or free. There was a point in my life where I was the cleanup boy in a meat department, which meant that I was the one who had to go after all the meat had been cut all day and go to the nasty machines with all the meat juice on it, and I had to scrape it out. I had to pressure wash the entire butcher room, tables, walls, machines, get my hands up in grinders, And I would walk to my car at the end of the day, and I would be able to do this, scrape my nails on my face, and pull off, you know where I'm going, I pull off this layer of meat residue (laughs) that had adhered itself to my face. And as I did that, I thought the very thing you've thought at various moments of your life, I don't get paid enough for this. (laughs) This is not worth it. But here we see the wonderful truth of the gospel, don't we? That God rewards his people proportionally. Can you imagine? So we're in a society where the slave economy isn't what it used to be. It's not central to the workplace. But can you imagine the kind of relief this brought to a slave in Paul's time? Where they see this. They're sitting in the church in Ephesus and the pastor preaches this text on Sunday and they go to work Monday and they're like, this is the will of God. This is worship. I'm going to obey with a singular heart because Jesus served me. And they get to their master at the end of the day and he withholds their wages. Or he pays them less than what he promised them. But here, Paul says, God sees your works, and God will reward you for exactly what you have done. God has promised to not turn a blind eye. Man might withhold wages, but God will not withhold his blessing. Now, these works don't earn salvation. Only Jesus does that. Only Jesus can work well enough to earn salvation. But they do bring us greater blessings in our salvation. And this is so important for us to see because there will be times where when you just look at the surface level of your work, worldly pay scales won't work to motivate us. Or the return on our labor, monetarily or socially, will seem slim. But God promises to reward that work in the secret places according to his mercy. That's why one of Jesus' commands is to store up for yourselves not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. God really rewards us. We almost hear those things and we assume that God's not true to his word. It doesn't look like worldly rewards, but it is rewards, better rewards. The God who invented rewards gives us rewards. And Paul here reminds us that whether you flip home or burgers or you serve paper or platters or you uh, create wealth or spreadsheets, whether you are slave or free, God will reward you for your obedience towards him. Your reward, hear this. This is why Christianity is so unique. Your reward before God himself 
is not dependent upon your status in society. Isn't that good news? There are no caste systems in heaven. There is no income gap in heaven because God rewards evenly. One 19th century pastor, pastor captures this beautiful truth when he says this. In this world, some men are masters and some are slaves. In the next, these distinctions will cease. And the question will not be who is the master and who is the slave, but who has done the will of God. We know that we work for rewards. You, right now, wherever you work, you're working for a reward. But what this wants you to ask is what is that reward and can that master provide it? Behind so much of our work are veiled desires for financial security which bring us peace, which seems to promise salvation. But do you realize only Jesus can provide that to you? Jesus in his perfect work has pleased God so that those who stand in him might get the joy of working in God's will to experience the pleasures of God. Do you work for that, Master? Are you able to rest from work for worldly rewards because God has promised you greater rewards? In light of these practical points, consider this tonight. Are you working for the will of God, as the worship of God, for the reward of God? And where might, as a point of application, God be calling you to repent and to work for a greater master and a better reward? And now Paul turns, just as he's done with wives and then husbands and then children and then parents, he turns from uh, bondservants to masters. And if you're an employer, if you're a master, if you have authority, this is Paul's words to you in verse 9. This is the gospel view of authority, our second point. Gospel view of authority. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So those who are in an economic position of authority, Paul wants you to see two things. First, he wants you to see that masters lead by example. He says, masters, do the same to them. Now, we have to say this in our day and age because this isn't Marxism. Paul isn't removing all social, social structures and all systems of authority. And how do we know that? Because Paul is still writing to masters and to slaves. He's not erasing structures of authority. Instead, he's showing us how the gospel redeems structures of authority. And in this master-servant economy, Paul says to the masters, do the same to your servants. So we should ask the question, What's the same? What is it that we're doing? What does God want from you? Everything we just looked at. Paul wants you to work and to lead and to oversee, knowing that it was part of God's will for his glory. And because it's part of God's will, he wants you to see your leadership and your service and your organization, not simply as related to the bottom line, but as related to the worship of God. And he wants you to understand that God rewards those who work for him. It means that you, masters, set the tone for what life is like in your workplace. Do your people want to work for you? You see, just as Paul is calling employers to respect and give dignity to their masters, so Paul says, masters, are you respecting and giving dignity to your employees. This is the piece of mutual submission that Paul has been talking about and unpacking since chapter 5, verse 21, where he says this, that we are to be submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. That means if you are a master, if you are a manager, if you are an owner, and you see your employees as mere subordinates, then you've already missed the gospel principle in all of this. You've already forgotten what the gospel of Jesus models for you. John Calvin said it best to pull in the dignity of everyone when he says this. He says, our world is fixed to set little value on the labor of slaves. 
but God esteems them as highly as the duties of kings. You see, if we see that all work is God's work, that all work either shows glimpses into heaven or begins to wage war against the curse, then shouldn't we believe that God's workers should be treated differently? And here we see in this text, even though it doesn't condemn slavery, we see texts like this being used to abolish slavery by the church throughout centuries. Because if masters treated men like this, the problems of slavery would dissolve, wouldn't they? But the problem of our hearts is that we often take the smallest bit of power or authority that God himself gives to us, and it poisons our hearts to harm instead of to help. And this is why Paul gives this weighty point at the end where he says not only do masters lead by example, but masters, this is the second point, understand true authority. Look back at chapter 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. In speaking to masters, Paul immediately reminds these men that they are not immune from authority. That there is a master, the same Greek word for Lord, who is over all. He is in heaven and he sees all. And you are under him. And Paul brings into play this idea of partiality. And when he starts talking about partiality, what Paul has in mind is really divine judgment. Look at what Paul, in a similar tone, says in Colossians 3, verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This master, your master, is a righteous judge. And he will give to all exactly what they deserve. All who do evil, all who threaten unceasingly, all who abuse their power will be punished with direct proportionality for their sin. Now it seems counterintuitive to what we experience, but in this very season we are in, in America, this is the easiest culture to preach a doctrine of eternal damnation in. It is. Because in our Me Too world, we see men and people in positions of authority harming, maiming, persecuting, extorting, violating people in submission to them across our country. And every time our culture tweets, posts, or comments that this is an issue, they are crying out for a God who refuses to pardon the rich and the powerful because they are rich and powerful. This is what we want. A God who sees sin for what it is and it cannot escape his view. We've seen this just in the past month with the saga surrounding millionaire Jeffrey Epstein. He was convicted in 2008 for child prostitution. And this past year he was arrested again and charged with being the ringleader of a child prostitution ring with members that included many people for, supposedly, allegedly from America's political elite. And finally, our country said, justice will come. But before Epstein could testify, before it was investigated, before the list was released, Epstein was found dead in his jail cell. And this sent our world into outrage. Why? Because it seems Epstein avoided his punishment. It seems that all of those powerful people who are extorting people because of their power were going to continue to live life without any sort of recompense. But here is the truth that Paul wants you in positions of authority to know. 
you will not escape the punishment of God. Just as Paul promised the bondservant that his good works will never be unrewarded, so too will those who do evil never go unpunished. We can't, as a culture, value justice unless we value a God who judges justly. In the economy of God, wealth and status cannot insulate or subvert justice because God is over it. Power and prestige are nothing compared to the weight of your sin. And if you are an individual where on this earth you have such power, prestige, and privilege, know this, it cannot shield you from this truth. You cannot hide behind it. And if those with the most power in our society can do nothing about it, how much more damned are those without it? This is why we need Jesus. This is the beautiful truth of the gospel. Employee or employer, there is only one way where we get what we do not deserve. Jesus taking our punishment. Jesus becoming the disobedient servant for us. Jesus taking all of the wrath, all of the death, all of the punishment we deserve with all of its filth and serving us by dying for it. You see, without Jesus, texts on the partiality of God should terrify us. But with Jesus, good partiality is made possible because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus pays the price for gospel partiality, and the result is grace. That we are counted not according to what we have done, not according to the wrong that our power or position might justify, but we are justified by Jesus himself. This is the gospel. Do you see Jesus doing that for you? Do you see that Jesus became the doulos that frees us from the bondage of sin? Do you see that Jesus is the ruling king who will judge you one day according to him? Whether you stand in him and are saved by grace or whether you stand apart from him and are judged according to the weight of your sin. And it's because Jesus offers this grace that we who have been redeemed by such a king as this have new life. A life that changes our relationships, our work, our rest. Life which should be drastically different. Because when you have a gospel which saves you from everything, it means that in everything we might finally be distinct. May that truth make us distinct in this church, in our homes, in our marriages, and in our city. Because the gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you work this mighty work. We pray that as Monday comes, that we are a different people because we see God differently. We see the wonderful weight that stood over our head and the wonderful work of Jesus to take it away. Lord, give those who are in positions of service to things and people that are less than God. Give us godly wisdom and long-suffering. Make us witnesses for your glory. To those who are in positions of authority, remind them that there is an authority over them and that their greatest leadership is leading people to that master, of modeling their rule on your rule. And Lord, we pray that this is the first meaningful step we take to being a Missoula church of proclaiming the glory of Christ through our city in our work. We pray for all of this in your name. Amen.